ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today we have a very interesting new guest. His name is Jay Akonzo, and he connects two roles in his life, and I imagine a multiple more too. So he's a VP of platform at Next U Ventures. So we're going to be touching on um, investment a little bit, and he also runs his own platform podcast show called Unthinkable, and he'll definitely share something about that too. So, hi, Jay. Hey, Jane. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Uh, doing great. Thanks for joining us today. So, I hope my introduction was correct, but please tell us more about what you do and what worlds you connect into wonderful creative work. Yeah, sure. Thank you, by the way. Um, so, I think the the theme that ties all my work together is that I like to make things to help other makers. So right now I'm doing that in two ways. So one is to work at NextView Ventures, which is a seed stage VC firm uh, based in Boston and New York. And basically what we do is look for very, very early stage investments. Again, seed stage only. That's our focus. And my role is to actually invest, but rather create content and other resources to help support our startups and then more largely the startup ecosystems where we work. Um, and then the other half of my world where I'm, you know, again, making things for makers is my show Unthinkable. So the idea behind Unthinkable is a lot of people have this intuition, this desire to be creative, and they often ignore it or mitigate it away. And so what we're asking is, what does it look like and what does it take to hone your intuition and turn it into action? And so right now it's a podcast, very narrative style, lots of storytelling, you know, music, sound effects, that kind of thing. That kind of thing. So it's between next view and unthinkable. I think I could kind of sum it all up as you know, creating things for other creators or making things for makers. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. So let's touch the you know uh, more rational aspect of the work first. So you're VP of platform. What is that platform that um, you're naming here? Uh, is that name for your community and resources that you uh, provide for startups? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a misleading word. It means so many different things in so many cases. Even in VC, the word platform is defined differently in different VCs. But I'll try to sum it up in terms of next view and then maybe speak a, a very brief moment to the larger trend because it's definitely a big trend in VC that if you're in the startup community, you should be aware of. So at next view, again, our goal, the reason we exist as investors, whether it's through capital or advice, is to help you get initial traction, seed stage capital, advice in a boardroom, in meetings, as a, as a partner. And so an extension of that is, well, how else can we help you gain initial traction? Let's create a platform, a menu of different things. And so for us, it's all around the same idea of traction, whether it's an investment or our platform work, but the platform work is more scalable. So it's uh, rather than a one-off meeting, it'll be our blog It'll be, you know, our medium publication called Startup Traction. It'll be our podcast, which is also called Traction, um, which we have lots and lots of entrepreneurs that come on and talk through how they use creative and clever ways to go from zero to one in anything. It could be in product, it could be in marketing, it could be in uh, fundraising. But you're going through this interesting stage as a startup where everything is starting from scratch and you're going through the first phases of them. So what we're asking is, what are the challenges that entrepreneurs are facing? How do we systematically help with that? beyond just capital and advice. And so that's how we define it. But more broadly, you're seeing tons of uh, VCs, angel groups, et cetera, hire these roles and define it differently, whether it's events and offline community, uh, networks of people and experts you can tap, technology, 
it's all this like wonderful array of investors who are very smart, very connected people bringing on folks whose sole job is to make entrepreneurs' lives easier. And, and that's a great, great world to live in, but it's definitely become a little bit of a trend to watch out for in the tech startup world in particular. So this sounds like an amazing place for startups to be, but tell us a little more about your background there. What was your role at NextView Ventures and how exactly your relationship went with the other founders and uh, you know, what is your exact role in funding that platform? Sure. So I think it's important to understand the context that led me here. So I'm a writer by trade. You know, I host multiple podcasts, one for next few, one for unthinkable, but my core skill is definitely writing. Um, wanted to be a sports journalist when I grew up. And then I actually got a job out of college at Google doing digital media strategy. So I was advising brands and agencies on how to use Google AdWords to build their marketing campaigns. Um, and when I left Google, I, I was looking for a startup and found my way into content marketing because it was quickly becoming a trend Back then, as platform is in VC today, um, content marketing was booming across lots of companies, especially in the startup world. And so people saw my kind of like marketing chops plus my writing skill and passion and kind of the blend, the intersection was content marketing. And so I worked in several different tech startups, either writing and creating or leading teams that do editorial and design Um, and then with the VC role, it was definitely like most things in life kind of happenstance where a founder I'd work with knew one of the partners at NextView. NextView was ahead of the game where they were hiring for this platform role before a lot of their peers. And when I talked to them, it was very clear that it was this great opportunity that was totally unproven. There was no playbook, no precedent. It was like, we know we want to add more value to the seed stage startup community, whether you're an operator, you're a designer, a marketer, a salesperson, whatever, or you're a founder. And we didn't know how to do that. We had some general ideas. And so they brought me on to kind of like tinker on those ideas. And if you fast forward two years later, you know, I've gotten to work with our 50 plus companies very closely to understand what their problems are. And then rather than just consult one company, I go back to the headquarters and I figure out what can we do systematically to solve not just that one company's problem, but because it's likely across the portfolio that they're facing it, solve all of them for, for all the companies, that same problem. And usually because it's content-based, it's also very public. And so you can access the things that we're doing right from our website, our blog, our podcast. So that's kind of the evolution and the context behind, uh, behind platform. That sounds amazing. Like all your skills suddenly <laughs> fell into <laughs> place for that. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a big creative, uh, creative job, but it's exciting. I, I like it because it has no precedent in playbook. You know, I'm someone who doesn't like to just turn the crank on a machine that's established. I kind of like tinkering on the whole machine and figuring out what we should build and how to build it. Absolutely. So uh, today, how does your day look like? Um, what, what do you do? So I, I see your work par partially is like uh, top managing that platform. The other is actually working with startups on a daily basis. So I imagine like consultations do feed content marketing a ton probably, but tell me more about that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, when I spend time with our companies, it's largely to, you know, greet them when they came, uh, when they're coming into the portfolio after a new investment, let them know what we do on the platform side, whether it's internal only initiatives to help them hire or content that they might want to check out that we've created because of something I learned about them. You know, okay, you're a very product centric founding team. You're about to do some marketing for the first time. Well, here's a template or a playbook we've built, and I just want to flag that to you. And, you know, in general, just get a relationship. I like to meet with them early. But 
based on the conversations I'm having and also the conversations our investment team continues to have with, you know, people that are pre-investment and post, it's all customer development. It's all figuring out what are the challenges that we keep hearing. And then my day is basically cut into two pieces. Either I'm thinking about those challenges and trying to figure out all the steps a founder currently takes to solve a problem and then brainstorming initiatives that we could use to remove those steps or I'm building the thing. So I'm a one-man band and I'm just super hyperactive. So we do a lot of stuff, but it's, it's all kind of me at the controls plus the investment team, the partners and our principal down in New York, all very involved as well. Um, but I'm basically trying to figure out what are we looking to solve? How do we remove a painful step for a founder or someone on a startup team to solve a problem that they often have to solve? So one example is if you have to build a board deck for your new board after you've raised seed capital, it's a lot of uncertainty. You don't have a ton of data. You don't have different departments yet. You're working with a new group of investors, even if you've had a board before. And so how do you go about using the board meeting effectively Well, one step is to build a board deck, and that's super painful because you may not have a good idea of the layout, and you probably don't have a designer on staff. So we went and found a couple great freelance designers. I worked closely with them, and we built a template and several templates at that. And so that's an example of like, I've removed your step of figuring out the layout and the design for your slides, and now you can focus on the meaningful conversation. So I guess that's kind of painting the picture. There's no one set day routine because my projects change problem to problem, but largely it's spent either figuring out what the problem is or building the asset to solve it. That's pretty amazing. You're doing a great job at that because the way I came across yourself is actually doing research of funded startups and your uh, pl- platform was definitely one of the places providing you know real, vi- real life valuable advice, not top in the sky, not uh, very down on the bottom, but actually something that people can use on a daily basis. Awesome. No, and that's the goal. I mean, if you're, especially if you're in a seed stage startup, again, it could be you're, you're a founder or you're, you're a designer, product manager, whomever, you have to get stuff done. Like there's nobody there just sitting around thinking. And if you waste time, that's it's very valuable time you can't get back and you don't have a ton of resources. So I think a lot of VCs are very, very, very smart. And they've come from successful companies themselves oftentimes. And so the temptation is to write about, you know, what's the future of Uber or the macro <laughs> trend in the environment, you know, or, you know, Facebook live video and how that it's, you know, they're playing around with it. And, and all that's important. You definitely need someone on the bleeding edge looking out over the horizon. But what about the next six months? What about the next 18 months? That's where we live. That's where we thrive, you know, and then we do work with a lot of later stage investors who will come on board and come onto the boards of our companies. But for now, you know, it's like, you got to get stuff done in the first few months. That's what we're going to write about. That's what we're going to speak about. That's what we're going to create assets around. It's not the sexiest stuff in the world, but it's the most important. Right. Uh, so we have uh, plenty of founders or aspiring founders here in the audience. So let's give them some insight. What does the first, let's say, six or 12 months uh, look like for for someone who just got their seed round? Oh, it, it's, it's completely varied constantly. Um, but I think, you know, and the reason it varies, and I don't want to prescribe one look, although I'll give you one example, is you're seeing this trend in seed stage investments where you could be two guys, a girl in a garage with an idea and a prototype, or you could be a company that has a software product that has 100K 
in annual revenue already and you have some semblance of product market fit. So it used to be that you were pre-product market fit, you would get an investment from a seed fund or do a family, friends, angel, et cetera, and then go right to series A. Now seed is becoming this like atomized version of a round where there's like all these micro versions of seed. There's pre-seed, there's institutional seed, there's seed extension. You can do a second seed in a row. Like there's different use cases. So a lot of our companies are very diverse. But what we try to do is hammer out a number of things. So the first is hiring. The second is knowledge. And the third is community and connections. Like those are the three big buckets that you need to address once you have some capital. And the first and most important almost always is hiring. And so what we've done, for example, is we have something called the talent exchange program where it's an internal only initiative available to our portfolio once we invest in your company and you can get vetted candidates essentially delivered to you every single week or every other week now. And so it's operators, mostly some executives, because when you have that seed investment, you want to go hire the designer, hire the developer, hire the frontline marketer. You're not rounding out your investment or your executive team quite yet. Um, so that's, that's hiring. And then knowledge and community, that's our job constantly is to build out a bigger and better database of all these different problems you go through at the seed stage so that when you come on board into our portfolio, three of those things are relevant to you in a way that at a different company, three different things are going to be relevant there. So I know that's not a satisfying answer, but it's so diverse across companies, across sectors, that it's really incumbent upon us as your investor to make sure we have a true platform, a true menu of lots of things that are grounded in reality of the generic seed stage startup world. Because at some point, you're going to need some of that stuff, not all of it. We like to say it's on demand, not demanding. We're not prescribing you do three things every time, but we have you know, a lot available so that some of it is super helpful to you in your specific situation. Mm -hmm. Do you have any specific strategy when, uh, like investment strategy, any type of startups you particularly like to serve in your, you know, investment activities? So we do have some kind of guardrails and goalposts. The way we get most focused is we are a seed stage investor only. You know, we don't bleed up into the series A. We do lots of follow-ons, but the first investment will always be in the seed. Um, we do like to lead seed rounds, which does separate us from a lot of other firms that like to do smaller checks into lots of companies. We do what we call high conviction, hands-on seed investing. So the high conviction part is we're doing a small number of deals. There's three partners and a principal. And between them, they do about 10 to 12 deals total every year. And we love the lead position. We love to be very active and helpful. And that's the hands-on part. I'm an extension of that. And so that changes the way we approach a seed stage company. You know, we're treating you almost like you're a growth stage about to go IPO because every seed is incredibly special and meaningful to us in a way that, again, some investors tag just dozens and dozens of companies and they don't really have a window into what you're going through and they can't commit that much time to you, not because they're evil or bad or anything like that. I don't think in terms of good versus evil, but it's just that they, they have different incentives. And so our incentives align nicely with somebody who wants, you know, that true partner. So that's kind of how we focus. And then we have a series of filters of, you know, is it US based? We're primarily Northeast, about 80% of our companies are in the Northeast US. Um, you know, is it connected to the internet? So it could be hardware, but it's got to have some connectivity. Is it software online, things like that. So we're not very focused on sector, we're very, very focused on seed and the way we approach seed. 
it's really great to hear that you are so much hands-on uh, in terms of the approach. I wonder how you balance that um, be, that being, uh, you know, helpful and prescriptive, something in between that founders do enjoy. How do you handle that? So I kind of, this kind of speaks to, let me, let me see if I know what you're getting at. So the kind of like being demanding and prescriptive versus just kind of being available if needed, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So we do work with lots of companies who are founded by veteran entrepreneurs who will come to us when they have a specific need or question or not at all. Um, and that's totally fine. And so I think a lot of VC platforms, for example, will develop things that demand your time. Hey, we're going to have this event or this founder dinner. That's a good example. And some of that stuff makes you as a founder and an entrepreneur roll your eyes and say, look, I got to build. You know, <laughs> I, I don't have a huge executive team yet to put their hands at the controls and for me to go out and be public. I need to create. I need to sell. Um, and so we're like, okay, we do some events, absolutely. But we're very clear from the get-go. We are going to do a lot of things. We're going to give you context of those, those things at the very beginning of our relationship so you're aware of them. And then it's on demand. You can go and access those things whenever you want. We will not bug you. We will not spam you. We will not like prescribe you do a certain thing that we're trying to do. You know, it could be very easy, for example, for the partners to ask me to, to deliver certain numbers every month or quarter. You know, how many of our portfolio companies attended an event or subscribed to our blog or whatever. That's very dangerous because that incentivizes me to basically bug you as a founder. And we do not <laughs> want to do that. So again, it's this idea of like, we're going to put out as much value as possible, but at no point are we going to like shove it down your throats. And I think that's just an awareness and an empathy of what it is to build a startup. Like everybody who's been at this company, uh, or sorry, this firm has either founded or worked at an early stage startup. And so we, we get it and we're around it all the time now. And so by no means do we want to say, and by the way, you also have to commit four to five hours of your, your week or your month with next few stuff. No way. That's great. Absolutely. So I cannot avoid asking you about, you know, design matters, even though you're not a UI UX person, but still, <laughs> um, what, from your experience, how do early stage startups approach, you know, the design aspect of their work? Is there any specific patterns that you are observing more often than not? How do they handle hiring, et cetera, et cetera? So, there's definitely different types of founders that we see. And, you know, you can kind of describe them in like broad swaths. So, for example, there's, you know, we're Boston based. So we have the, the Tom Brady founder, which is like, this is someone who has seen success. And when it's their time to shine, they're more likely to succeed. And everyone is surprised by it, but you shouldn't be in the way that Tom Brady went to a great college was the backup to a great quarterback. And when his turn came, he delivered, right? And so that's your kind of executive from a company that scaled in another uh, instance, another year, another sector. And now they're the CEO starting their first company. They're a first-time entrepreneur, but they're like that Tom Brady profile. So that's like one kind of persona of entrepreneur that we see a lot. But another is definitely this design-focused founder. Um, so we invested, for example, in a company called Sunrise, which was acquired by Microsoft. So it was this just beautiful, intuitive, just like calendar. amazing UX calendar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. I'm looking at it right now on my laptop. Um, and so, you know, Pierre and the team over there were very focused, Pierre, Jeremy, everybody very focused on design, UI, UX, you know, uh, delighting the user and, and building a product that like you actually wanted 
to interact with that things just worked. Um, they had a great little feature called Meet, for example, where you could like just randomly click a bunch of times on your calendar. It generates a link to then send to somebody to schedule you. Um, amazing feature, right? And so they have a very different approach to their business than like a sales guy who starts a SaaS company or like a data-driven marketer that starts a software company. Um, and the good news is, you know, we're, we're in a portfolio strategy, so we can invest in people that are design-centric and people that are not. Um, but one of our mandates, one of our things that we definitely focus on are finding those people that care so deeply about the design, so deeply about their craft that it drives them to go and solve a problem in the market because there's this authenticity to the way a design-centric founder goes about their day that makes them really hungry. And then, you know, if they're if they have a gap in knowledge around distribution or, you know, marketing and acquisition, that's fine. That's why our platform exists. So we can mold to whoever the, the founder is. But, you know, the pithy answer is like, yes, everybody who's design centric, whether it's for product or kind of a higher level ideal of like what good design should be. We love working with those types of people because they're so driven and dedicated to their craft. Oh, that's like honey to my ears. Sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm a writer. No, it's honey to mine too. Like as a writer, I'm like, yes, I can get on board with that mentality. For designers who are listening to us, probably most of them would love to work with funded startups because uh, definitely they have money to do that. But would, you know, startups usually hire one-off gigs, consultants, etc., etc., or rather go for permanent hires? And would they prefer local or remote? Uh, I don't think the local part is as important as the time commitment part is. So especially because mm -hmm. a lot of tech startups have remote engineers. Um, the early stage companies that we invest in will oftentimes bring on a freelance designer, two, three, et cetera, because they lack that in-house muscle, but they also lack the in-house work where they can't, they can't bring on somebody full time because they don't have enough for that person to do yet. They're still proving out what the actual idea should be how to find product market fit, et cetera. They're, they're still like kind of aiming the arrow before they fire it. Um, and, but they're very open and interested in hearing from us as their investors about who we think highly of as freelance designers. So if you're interested in working with tech startups, I think one way to do it as a freelance designer, for example, is to go through VCs, not network with them, because that's going to be a waste of your time because they have to meet dozens and dozens of founders and their inboxes are overloaded, but like provide value to them proactively. So for example, if someone is really interested in working with a next few startup, I'm kind of showing my hand here a little bit, but, mm -hmm. and they looked at our portfolio or more accurately looked at our content and they were like, they write these blog posts. Like there's a design asset that I could build. There's an infographic. There's the, the front door to a search engine over their content. I could build something proactively for them very quickly and send it to them and be like, I made this based on your content. It's proving to me instead of telling me that you can do the work that's super valuable to this world. And then if someone asks me later, do you know any good graphic designers? Boom, you're the first person I think of. And so it's like adding value before you try to extract it is the way I would come at it. You know, same way in any type of role, but certainly with design, it's never been easier because there's no gatekeepers. Like you can just create on the internet for free all the time. And designers know this because you focus so much on your portfolio Writers know this because we do the same, but I still think there's this mentality of like, I got to find the right person and ask for permission to like add value to them, but forget the permission, just start adding value to them. And then the work will come back around. 
That sounds like an amazing piece of advice for our listeners. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> so one piece of advice is don't try to network with VCs because that's not a good strategy, right? And the other is deliver uh, hands-on, on-spot, you know, f- a bit of free work that's going to open the gates for you. Right. And, you know, I... I- I do believe in doing some spec work. I think there's some sensitivity around that. I don't believe in giving away all your work for free or for exposure. You should get paid for the work you do. But, you know, one great example is there's a startup here in town that created a map of startups. So now everybody in the startup world is looking at that map and knowing the company behind it. So if you're a designer, there's opportunities to do stuff like that. Where it's a side project, it's not necessarily for another entity. It's for you. It goes in your portfolio, on your blog or whatever. But you're attracting the right people by creating that and sending it around to folks. You know, like, so if you want to do a visualization of the best VCs in town or interesting startups and where they live or what they're doing or or quotes from their founders or whatever, you can basically build assets that are really, really good and show your skill and then attract the people back to you kind of on an inbound way instead of trying to network by sending a bunch of cold emails. And the good news is those things act as networking opportunities and marketing, but they're also proof. They're also a a portfolio builder you're putting out into the world. And startup communities are so close-knit that those things get forwarded around like crazy. (laughs) Great recipe. Thank you, Jay. (laughs) Sure, yeah. So now let's move on towards the creative part of your work and the way you as a maker help other makers you know, create awesome stuff. Let's think talk about Unthinkable. Um, How do you come up with it? Uh, What is it? And how you run it. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've always been fascinated by when I talk to creative people, there are things that they're willing to admit to another person who they feel is also creative that they wouldn't admit publicly to the world. And a big part of that is they have this internal guide. They have this intuition that they work very hard to hone by shipping side projects, by caring about the small details of things in a world where people just say, screw it, ship it. Like they agonize over their craft. And that's really the word craft. You're, you are craft driven. And then you go back to your day job and you kind of like hide it. You get quiet about it. You speak the language of other people who are just in spreadsheets all day. There's this weird dichotomy of what you are when you can be honest and follow your intuition and what you are in the business world. And some people avoid this and it's wonderful. I want to find those people and tell their stories. But what Unthinkable really is, (laughs) (laughs) at its core, Unthinkable is an exploration of what it takes to hone your intuition and turn it into action. And the, the word unthinkable is because you have to make this leap that to many people seems crazy of, you know, basically you're leaping away from what logic says you should do towards what your intuition says is possible or better. And again, that's unthinkable to a lot of people. I would point to my experience in marketing where a lot of people just want to write the same kind of content over and over again because the data says it worked. And then I'm sitting there and I'm like, you're missing the best part, which is inventing and creating new things that don't just get 1.2x the last list-based article you wrote, but they get 10x because it's this amazing story or design or podcast that no one's ever thought to try. Um, And so that's the show's tilt. What does it take to hone your intuition and turn it into action? Who has done it? Let's shine a bright light on those people by telling really great stories and then providing the tools for our community to actually do it themselves. That sounds like you just combined a few very, you know, things that don't really match too well, which is intuition and actual business success. <laughs> I think they and, add, the thing is, mm-hmm. that's the misnomer. Like that right there, you just put the finger on like why I'm so excited about Unthinkable because that's actually where 
the myth needs to end. Because <laughs> think about it this way. If I were trying to write a great blog, uh, here's a perfect example. Nextview's blog gets about 80% of its traffic from organic search. And not once have I thought about our, our organic search strategy. I do have a plugin that tells me like how well optimized my content is for search. But if it reads red, I'm not going to suddenly re-engineer my writing so that it reads green. It's just nice to know. Um, I, you know, People start with the keyword, though. They start with the search engine optimization instead of, can I write really, really well? Can I tell a good story? Can I create something people want? Or am I listening to my customers and answering their questions? And it turns out there's a word for this, which is telic. It's T-E-L-I-C. Comes from, okay. ga- <laughs> comes from game design. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, it means done for the end result alone. And that's also known as a chore. So if something is becoming a chore, because all you're thinking about is getting to the end result, you start to hollow it out. You skip the craft part and the process part. What you actually want to do is make a task intrinsic. Make it worth doing for its own sake because you then tinker on it and get better at it. And I would argue, get better end results too. So that's, I think, the myth. It's like, oh, if you just start by the, looking at the end result only and do whatever it takes to get the end result, you'll get there. And I'm saying, whoa, if you honor the process, the craft, the creativity, just because you would do it, just because you love to write, just because you love to design, I would wager that makes you a better designer, writer, whomever, and gets you a better result because you're willing to do things others are not because they see it as a chore where you love doing it period right so in a way the process is the outcome i've learned it hard way that you've got to enjoy the format that you've picked for yourself in terms of content marketing for example i love doing these interviews that's why we're talking here and also like writing but maybe video is not for me that much because it's you know a ton of pressure so is that the kind of advice you give to your listeners That's definitely part of it. You know, it's like self-reflection and self-awareness and having empathy for your audience. Like a lot of that is, you know, the honing of your intuition, that part, Mm -hmm. and then turning it into action, right? Instead of trying to find a growth hack or some miracle tactic to unlock crazy podcast growth, you know, I would advise you, Jane, for example, like work on your performance as a person on the microphone, right? Like how do you re-engineer the beginning of each episode to instead of slowly introduce the concept get the listener right to the meat and the best part, right? You can do that in any number of ways. Like if you focus on that stuff, the stuff inside the process, the creativity, instead of like, how do I do what I'm doing, but do it faster to get an end result? I think you'll actually get the better end result. Um, Unfortunately, the internet is full of shortcut culture where it's like tips and tricks and secrets and hacks and how to get 750,000 subscribers with $10 in budget in 30 days. And (laughs) that is the wrong mentality to build anything that lasts, anything that gives you meaning. And I think ultimately everybody who hears this show, you're looking for meaning in your career. Like whether you think of it because you only get one life or you think of it just because you enjoy the craft of design, whatever it is that drives you, I would wager you're sitting there like, I really do want my work and my life to be meaningful. So not only do you lose that when you have the growth hack and the shortcut mentality, I also think you get worse end results. You mentioned, uh, you know, specifically interesting podcast techniques, and I know you're doing your own podcast, Unthinkable, in a very revolutionary manner, which I don't have good words to describe, but I'm sure you can. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, there's a couple ways we could describe it. At its core, it's very highly produced, very story-driven. But what we're trying to do is answer big questions. So, for example, we had an episode called The Muse is an Excuse, 
throughout history, centuries of people writing about creativity have chalked it up to there's this external factor. You're gifted with it or some inspiration strikes at a moment's notice or literally in ancient times, there is a deity that visits you and makes you creative. Okay, that's the conventional wisdom. How do we get you on board with it? Let's use an analogy to explain it and have you nod. Okay, yes, I understand the conventional wisdom. And what question does that lead us to? Now let's go outside the echo chamber of business and marketing and startups and talk to somebody who can speak to that and reframe it in a new way. Because then we can look at that question in a way that we didn't expect. Because, you know, creativity is just connecting disparate things. And so now that we've answered what is this even or what's this question, what's the answer? Let's go now profile a second person or a second story in longer form detail that shows you what can happen if you actually do pursue your intuition or you actually do live the lesson that we just learned in our first story. So it's this like series of open loops. It's like, here's this big theme. But what does this theme really mean? What question do we lead to? That's the first like loop. Second would be, okay, well, let's go talk to somebody who can give us a new perspective on finding the answer to this question. Okay, now that I have the answer to that question, what does it look like in action? Now let's tell a great big story about somebody who's done it. And so that's kind of the structure of the show. But it's a search, not an answer, right? It's like we've put this big idea out there, doing that unthinkable leap, following your intuition, how do you do it? We don't know the answer. We're out to try to ask questions and hunt for the answer right along with the listener. Sounds amazing. I should have <laughs> listened you. to a single episode before we got started. I, I, I did read your article about the format, though. It's a really good write-up. Uh, but I would love to hear. Uh, I would love you to tell our listeners a little bit how you actually produce that, how you plan, and how long it takes you to do one episode. Oh my gosh, so much deep dive. I could, I, we could spend a 60-minute episode talking about just the process, but um, it is a lot of work. So right now, you know, I have Next View, and then I have Unthinkable. So personally, I'm waking up every morning, going to my favorite coffee shop, and I'm writing for two hours to script the show. I do have a formula, kind of like what they call a rundown in TV, of like what each minute is supposed to be for, and I'm like writing to that framework. Which that's crazy. If you, you know, if you abuse it, it becomes a crutch. It becomes hollow. But I've actually found that it enables creativity. Because now, rather than just trying to get through the story, I'm like, well, I know what the first minute is. How do I make that minute the best possible minute? Um, you know, instead of what I did the first 11 episodes, which was just like birthing something giant into the world. And then I was spent after every single one of those first episodes. I was like, I just don't know what I'm doing. And I'm just putting it out because it feels right. And I'm spent. Now I'm sprinting again because I have a framework underneath my scripting. So we have a big question, big theme. The muse is an excuse we find two subjects to support that story. One is outside the echo chamber, something unexpected. One is someone who can speak to it because they live it. Then we have the interviews. Then I do the script where I have narration and I have the person's quotes that support the, the storytelling. Um, then I go in studio with a batch of those things. So every six weeks I go in studio and I record six episodes at a time. I kick those over to an editor that I work with, uh, Josh Cole. He's amazing. He gives me notes. He gives me feedback. He actually splices up the audio and takes my script and all the audio files and all the music I've sent him and puts it into final form. And then once it's out, once it's out the door, blogging, social sharing, speaking engagements, things like that to support it. So it's a lot of a lot, but again, doesn't matter because I just love the process. Like if nobody cared about the show, I'd still do it because I'm just like endlessly fascinated. I'm like cackling to myself about how I'm like looking at these little details of a creative project and tinkering on them. That sounds amazing. How many episodes have you produced yet? So we've done 11 for Unthinkable. Um, I've done 25 for Traction at Next View. I continue to do that on my own. Less 
um, involved, I guess, less, less people work on that show than Unthinkable. But we're taking a hiatus right now at the time of our recording here in, in mid-June to work on the framework, to work on the mission, to figure out the business model. So we're doing these big picture things for a period of one to two months. And I'm also scripting episodes so that later this summer when we come back, we're off to the races. We know where we're heading. Community people, you know, we can get community on board more so. So uh, it's been 11 episodes and it's been a lot of fun. Sounds amazing. So let me ask you one question. Uh, I, I hear that it's primarily the podcast show, which is heavily produced, but uh, you have bigger plans to make uh, Unthinkable a large platform. So can you tell us more about that and what is your way of building a community around that? So at its core, I mentioned that how you know, this is kind of a search or a journey to figure out the answer. What does it look like when somebody bets on their intuition? When you know, mm-hmm. logic says do something else and they, and they ignore that and follow their intuition and good things happen. What can we learn from those people? What's the underlying traits? You know, how can we all be better in that regard? That applies to a ton of industries. Like right now, my sweet spot is people in the tech world, the startup marketing world, the, the marketing world in general and kind of creatives in a classic sense. And so right now that's the bulk of the audience. But, you know, you could see a scenario where there's unthinkable finance and unthinkable education and, you know, just applies in such a bigger fashion. Unthinkable consulting group, like, you know, I'm not just looking to build a really great show that stands alone and requires me to be on it all the time to succeed. I want that too, but I want it to be bigger than me. I want the community to kind of tinker on everything and grow it. So in a way, I'm nailing, I'm basically like, the first one in the jungle hacking away at where we're going. But as everybody takes up more and more machetes and comes with me, like we can really carve a path and start sprinting. So to sum it all up, like I want this to be a living, breathing, giant side project for anybody that believes in the idea and the mission. I would love to hear your take on, you know, the technology side of things. What's the best way of organizing that community and You've also been definitely building a community platform for NextView, so you have a good understanding how you know platforms, forums, uh, Slack rooms, I don't know whatsoever, works around people and what works well. So uh, Slack is the default, and it's wonderful. However, it takes a deceptive amount of community management and active uh, like oversight by you to build that community. You know, whether you're asking people who send you emails, hey, can you put that over in the group or you're lobbing out ideas and content to keep people engaged. It doesn't just happen by getting a bunch of people signed up. And I've tried for NextView. I've tried for fun on the side with a bunch of startup marketing people like myself. And so, you know, don't look to the tool, look to the actual community, people like the way you build a community is that everyone has context around each other and they're willing to grow together. It's not just an invite and lots of people join. So the way to start is not similar to my work with Unthinkable or NextView, but actually a side project I had a couple of years ago, uh, I think 2011 it was, I started a community group in Boston for content marketers called Boston Content. Today, we're 1,300 to 1,500, somewhere in that range, strong. But when I started it, it was a drink meetup. Let's go have drinks once a week and talk about our work. And that brought in 5, 10, 15, 25 people. Then it became a panel then it became a speaking series, then it became uh, an online Google group. It slowly by slowly grew because it was like one person meeting another, meeting another, meeting another. That's how community grows. But I think because we have so many tools that help us scale, we lose sight of that and we skip right to the tool. Again, the telic mentality kicks in. We want to get to the big thriving community. The way to do that is to connect actual human beings and start small and grow it from there. 
So that would be my advice is actually don't look for the tool at all. Look for chances to connect actual human beings and then start to connect more of them slowly by slowly. Absolutely. One of my biggest discoveries too was that, you know, that big audience that we we're all talking about, it's not that audience thing. It's a bunch of human beings, actually, each of them having their own problems and their understandings and everything. Yeah, absolutely. So wrapping up to this episode, two pieces of advice from you. One um, is a do and the other is a don't for those people who are looking to, you know, brace their intuition and creativity. Sure. Do always be completely and brutally honest with yourself. So for me, I was always someone who bet on creativity privately, but then I would speak the language of data and listicles and hacks and shortcuts by my profession. Things got so much better in my career when I just admitted what I love and then I put myself and I poured myself into that. So be completely and totally honest with yourself, not just in the private moments, but publicly too. You have to get over some fears of people rejecting your work that way. But actually what happens is smaller numbers of people will respond in bigger ways and that's how to build an audience or a business. So that's the mm -hmm. do. The don't is look for secrets. The don't is to put somebody on a pedestal and be like, they're my hero. Kill your heroes and just act like they're someone you could be or be better than, but somebody valuable you could also learn from because that grounds them in reality. Like they've gone through the slog just like you're going through the slog. You know, don't read the article that promises you some tip or trick or secret because there are no secrets. Better than doing all of that and trying to find the secret is to redirect that time and attention and energy into producing a big meaningful body of work and that like it's not a secret but that is the only way that you can like access the stuff that people are writing about or people on stage or on podcasts talk about just like show up every day and put in the work and ship a ton of stuff like get your body of work together stop looking for secrets exactly that is so true and so simple but not easy <laughs> it's definitely not simple doesn't mean easy right well said it's it's hard because there are moments where you're like this is getting harder i want a shortcut or a secret Just know that there are none. Find people that are like-minded so you can commiserate and when it's hard, push through, <laughs> right? Like that's why these podcasts are so important because you hear people that you can start to nod and be like, yeah, they get me or like offline meetups or whatever. But yeah, just realize it is hard work, but that makes it meaningful. Absolutely. So where can people find you online? Uh, like my persona on a podcast, this is authentically me. I'm super hyperactive elsewhere online. Um, <laughs> so you can just search my name or the, you know, the best place to go to is probably the podcast website for unthinkable. It's unthinkable.fm. And, uh, if you want to contact me directly, probably the easiest way to engage with me is Twitter. Uh, it's easy for a lot of people to find just my full name, Jay Kunzo, but I've done a lot of behind the scenes of my work on Snapchat. And so that community is super open and I share a ton of knowledge and then like engage a lot on, on Snapchat as well. Same deal. The username is Jay Conzo. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. So thank you for coming up today and sharing such a ton of valuable knowledge with our audience. That was amazing. And I hope your business flourishes even more on all fronts. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jane. And to everyone listening, stop listening to podcasts. Go ship something out into the world like right now. Exactly. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Okay. Bye-bye.